Hello everyone, welcome back to the Black and Red Book Review Podcast. I'm of course your host, Doc. I am an apothecary, an anarchist, a union man, and a troublemaking hobo based out of so-called New England. And on this podcast, I rate, read, review, critique, and mock white nationalist and neo-Nazi literature. I read this shit so that other people don't have to. Now, despite the uh, opening mantra that I've just laid out for you, I do occasionally cover non-neo-Nazi and non-white nationalist literature because white nationalism as a current political, let's call it a movement or, or subculture, it's kind of both of those things. Neo-Nazism, of course, is an aesthetic choice more than anything else within the uh, the broader white nationalist scene nowadays. Uh, there's obviously no functioning national socialist government anywhere on Earth since 1945, um, thanks to a little thing called World War II that you might have heard of. But in order to more broadly understand white nationalist neo-Nazi literature, it's occasionally necessary to go back to the very beginning of fascism as a political tradition. Fascism is never going to be used as a slur on this podcast. Fascism is not simply when government does stuff, sort of used by some people on the on the left uh, the same way the right uses the term socialism as a slur and as a shorthand for government doing stuff. I will never do that on this podcast. This is a very precise, very, not academic, but a very intellectually rigorous podcast, or at least we try to be here. So we've uh, certainly gone back and traced the beginnings of fascism previously on this podcast. Uh, We've covered the doctrine of fascism, fascism viewed from the right, and so on. Uh, And we're going to be doing that again today. We're we're, uh, not covering a Nazi and we're not covering a white nationalist. The author we're going to be covering today uh, published this book in 1936, back when fascism was a brand new, hot-off-the-presses idea that was still being worked out in practice with cracked skulls and death camps and invasions and then all that sort of thing. Um, But this is also a very progressive hallmark in the history of this podcast because this will be the first and possibly the only non-white guy who will be a featured author on this podcast. Uh, He was an American. He was uh, reputed to be the... uh, intellectual giant of American fascism in the middle 1930s, despite which no one, almost no one, remembers who this guy was, even though he was so profoundly influential. Uh, He's not even really discussed among modern-day white nationalists and neo-Nazis. I happened to stumble across his name while doing background research for this podcast, and I went right down the fucking rabbit hole. Uh... But the author we'll be covering today was a dude by the name of Lawrence Dennis. Uh, he was what folks might call a passing black man. He uh, he sort of acted white, and he was just light-skinned enough to pass himself off as like what people at the time called swarthy and probably other slurrier terms. Uh, But he palled around with elite white guys, rich white guys, you know, capitalists, Wall Street guys, politicians, etc., etc. He was a respected geopolitical consultant at the time, 
And he was more pro-Mussolini than he was pro-Hitler. He was actually snubbed when he tried to meet with the Nazi hierarchy. So we'll be referring to him throughout this episode as a fascist because he was a fascist. Uh, He was acknowledged as such both by his allies and his enemies. Uh, And he refers to himself in his own book as a fascist. So... Not to hand it to the fascists because it's just an anti-fascist podcast. But if a person tells you who you who they are, you believe them. You know. Uh, so if a man calls himself a fascist and and critiques uh, and and makes observations and lays things out from a fascist perspective, it's fair to call him a fascist uh, and then deal with him accordingly. But as I said, fascism is a label and a uh, tra- political tradition one has to deal with and respond to. Um, it's certainly one that's a mortal enemy of my own black and red anarchist tradition, but it is nonetheless a political tradition and not a slur. So with that out of the way, let's go through a bit of Lawrence Dennis's biographical background here. Uh, he was born to a black working class mother. His father's identity is disputed, but it was quite likely he was white. Uh, His mother certainly alluded to the fact that he had a white father. He spent his childhood as a traveling, charismatic child preacher. Uh, He started acting white when he was about 16 years old. He went to, you know, really snotty private schools thanks to connections he made. He worked for the U.S. State Department for a while. Uh, he served in World War I as a U.S. Army officer. He went to work for Wall Street banks for a while. Uh, Wall Street banks meaning banks that were based on Wall Street. Obviously, we don't use anti-Semitic dog whistles on this podcast. Uh, if a person is using dog whistles, of course, we will always explain what that dog whistle actually means, which it always boils down to a fantasy of a Jewish cabal running the world. Um Which, to be fair, Lawrence Dennis was not overly anti-Semitic in this book. He was just a fascist, but not not a racialist, per se. It is hard to be a a white supremacist when you're, you know, secretly a black guy. Uh, (laughs) Not impossible, but very difficult. Uh, He was, however, an outspoken right-wing critic of FDR and the New Deal. Uh, The New Deal and FDR, of course, had a sort of I'm-trying-to-help-you-motherfucker approach to capitalism. Um, Obviously, liberal reformism was meant to stop working-class control and economic democracy in the United States in the form of socialism or anarchism or anything like that, Uh, both of which were very popular and very effective movements prior to the Great Depression. Um, But the New Deal sort of set a consensus that uh, stayed in place for about 40 years afterwards, up until the mid-70s when neoliberalism was introduced, which has burned down the entire world in my lifetime. Uh, He was slighted, of course, by the Reich, as we've already said. He was much more influential at the time than William Dudley Pelley of the Silver Shirts, whom we've previously covered, or the German-American Bund, whose writings I haven't been able to find, but if I can, I'll cover them on this podcast. But he was associated with both. He was also associated with Charles Lindbergh, whom I will probably get to at some point on this podcast. He might be my season finale, actually. I haven't decided quite yet. But with that overview of the situation and Lawrence Dennis himself out of the way, we can now get to chapter one. Uh, so he, you know, he's laying out sort of where he's coming from and what he wants to see done, etc. He says, uh, 
Quote, it is the unworkability of a given social system in a changed set of conditions which is most responsible for revolutionary social change. So in other words, a brilliant observation from the fascist intellectual right off the bat. Uh, shit don't work, so it has to get broken to fix it. You know, real, real genius stuff going on here. He uh, cites the transition from feudalism to capitalism, but he also shoots down, you know, economic determinism, as he calls it, with the counterpoint that, quote, changes in things act on preferences as well as changes in preferences on things. I don't know what the fuck that means. <laughs> it's just it's a word salad. Um, but he also lay, uh, maintains that, quote, it is a part of the process of maintaining order and making a given social system work to see to it that the people like what they have. So, yeah, social systems are, are, lay, are you know, maintained on a foundation of economic and social forms of control and either, you know, people are well off or they feel like they're well off or they feel like there's someone who's you know, that they're still better than someone else's. Um, we're certainly at that stage in modern capitalism. There's plenty of bootlickers who you'll meet who don't actually, they don't really care even if their own family is safe. They just want to feel like they've got it better than some other fuck down the street. That, that, you know, capitalism has always had a, a, a underpinning and a legion of people willing to go crack skulls for the bosses as long as their crumbs can be slightly bigger than other people's crumbs. It's not a very uh, sustainable way of looking at the world. You'll still be eating crumbs, um, but some people will never see that no matter how much you try to explain it to them. So that's just what it is. Quote, says Dennis, in measure as defenders of a system deem it necessary to argue with the people in favor of the preservation of the old system, they really admit and advertise its doom. Yeah, so what he says is basically if there are people arguing to defend the present system against ever-increasing discontent, um, they're just going to go down with the system. Fine so far. Nothing really controversial in that sentiment right there. Uh, he, he lays out more that people are, quote, always attached to the prevailing social, economic, and political structure. I don't know if they're always attached. That seems a little, uh, little bit of strong wording there. Uh, but Dennis views social change as only possible via action by a small elite. Uh, and as he'll lay out throughout this text, he's really desperately wants to be part of the elite. He's basically a sort of uh, uh, Candace Owens type character or a uh, Ben Ben Carson type character. Like, you know, the, the, the idea of a, a black person who's a simp for white supremacy and capitalism, that that long predates those two characters. Uh, he, he was doing it before it was cool, basically. So he, uh, he's, he goes on to state, quote, The defenders of the old system have to learn that the only good argument for the old system is to make it work. Again, yeah, obviously. Uh, moving on here. Those problems, he says, problems with the system, are matters of getting things done rather than of formulating moral judgments. So he, he is an amoral political actor, which is good to know and will be further laid out, of course. The, he cites the existence of monopolies as disproving liberal laissez-faire ideology, which, again, true. Uh, 
he uh, he gives praise to Marx, which is interesting. Quote, Marx did not proceed on the assumptions that the social evils he deplored were in the nature of defects rather than properties of the prevailing system. So he Marx was not a liberal, in other words. Again, shocking. Uh, Dennis, Dennis uh, simps for fascism a little bit in this chapter. Quote, the fascist proposes only to give posterity a heritage of achievements. Now, I don't know if uh, starting World War II and losing it and uh, exterminating six million Jews and millions of Romani and gay folks and uh, lesbian folks and, and a good chunk of the population of Poland is an achievement, but, eh, you know, don't – if you want to claim that, you know, knock yourself out. Um, but Dennis ultimately went real quiet after 1945, although he never did publicly renounce fascism. He was just less open about his fascist sympathies after 1945, unlike some Americans that we've covered on this podcast. <laughs> uh, he compares the five-year plans of Stalinism to boom-bust cycles in capitalism. He's somewhat critical in this chapter, but he does admire Stalin, which was not uncommon in 1936 among fascists, nor was an admiration of fascism uncommon among communists in 1936, because by this point, the CPUSA, for example, was just a puppet for, for Moscow, um, and it ended up just changing its line based on dictates from from the top, so to speak. Um, Stalin had sort of installed himself as a, instead of being an international uh, working class operation and the Soviet Union as a base for class struggle and so on, by this point it was just a bureaucracy that happened to have tendrils all over the place. Uh, so uh, he's critical of hierarchy, Dennis is in this chapter, but in a sort of unself-aware way, he doesn't really realize that or seem to follow up the thought at all. But he says that, quote, the dictatorship of a communist party, a corporation, or an army is a self-perpetuating dictatorship of management, management which is mainly answerable to itself, a thought that he never applies to fascism anywhere in this book. But he says, quote, if it works, a social system survives, and if it survives, it works. Again, brilliant fucking uh, observation with which we close out chapter one and move on to chapter two. Uh, Dennis predicts the collapse of a financialized consumer economy. Uh, he maintains that capitalism is as population grows and that, quote, what has made capitalism workable has never been stability or slow growth. It must expand quickly and constantly and gobble up everything in sight. Those are my words, not his. Uh, he states that infinite growth violates mathematical and physical laws. He goes into some Malthusian rhetoric about population at this point. I didn't really know that in detail because we've heard all that shit before. Uh, he's, but he does maintain that a, quote, growing supply of workers is essential for capitalism. Uh, but he, he's again harping on the inherent instability of capitalism. Quote, a stable market would not make capitalism workable, for such a market would not provide the necessary incentives for the investment of the surplus. Uh, and then he goes on to claim that capitalists are less self-perpetuating than feudal landlords. Uh, welfare measures, states Dennis, violate capitalism because unemployed workers should starve. Those are his words, not mine. 
Uh, obviously, I don't think people's uh, right to live is based on their ability to rent themselves out to a rich capitalist, obviously. Uh, and then he maintains that property rights are not synonymous with capitalism and that there are, quote, other systems capable of maintaining property rights, meaning fascism. Um, so fascism is not viewed by fascists as simply capitalism and decay the way our orthodox Marxist friends like to claim all the time. Um, but that last line brings us to chapter three, uh, where he is laying out more and more uh, about finance and consumer capital and how finance is unstable and just going to eat everything in sight um, up until the economic collapse that he had already witnessed not too long prior to this book being written and published. Uh, he continues the previously outlined theme in chapter four. Uh, and then he, he, he's starting to transition to therefore fascism and that part of the book quote, he says, the question really boils down to one of whether we shall get fascism through the war or fascism before the war and without getting into the war. Uh, so he, he's convinced that fascism is the way of the future. It's inevitable and you might as well get on board while you still can before you wind up in some sort of camp. Uh, he states that, quote, liberal and, – and in light of 1945, this is very hilarious, but this was something you could say unironically in 1933, 34, 35. Quote, liberal democracies have as bad a war record as the fascist countries, if not worse. Uh, uh, okay. Again, in light of, of what we know from 1945 onwards, that's fucking hilarious. But – uh, that was a take you could have in the mid-1930s prior to World War II. So I don't want to harp on him too much. He couldn't have known how that would go in 1934-35 when he was writing this. Uh, and here's where he starts telling on himself for sure uh, at the end of chapter 4. Quote, elites must ally with middle-class petty bourgeois to, quote, stabilize the situation of the collapse of capitalism via fascism. So he wants the boot, he wants a boot on his neck, he wants a boot to lick, as long as he can be in the middle tier of the elites. That's what Lawrence Dennis's whole, sh whole goal in life had been up till this point, and that was the goal he would die with and never quite manage to achieve, no matter how hard he tried. Really a pathetic figure, Dennis, ultimately. Uh, but we're moving on to chapter 5 now, uh, where he, he opens by stating that, quote, The fourth and last of the main questions set for discussion as part of the attack on the larger question of whether the present system is workable. But he states that uh, one of the premises of fascism is that reorganization under the present system is impossible. Not an uncommon notion in the mid-1930s, for sure. Uh, quote, says Dennis, the system has developed organic – favorite word of fascist, by the way, as we've covered pre over and over again on this podcast – organic, natural, spiritual. They love those words because it doesn't really mean anything, and it's never precise, but everything they like is organic or natural or spiritual. Quote, the system has developed organic inflexibilities in the debt structure, the price structure, and the volumes of supply and demand. Uh, counter, uh, countering to this, says Dennis, quote, a planned economy can readjust its maladjustments almost as easily as it can make them. Readjust its maladjustments. Uh, 
So you would unadjust them, or you would just fix them? It's it's very strange wording right there. Um, he he compares the failure of individuals to act in their own self-interest and thus to the wider benefit of society uh, to the breakdown of metabolism or uh, the processing of poison in the system. Uh, he compares debt to poison. Uh, he insists that, quote, most short-term debts are really long-term debts. Uh, he has an interesting take where he says that economic models that are enforced by the legal system in the United States are largely still acting as though they were in the 17 and 1800s. Um, and he, he says that, uh, judges navigating accounts are quote, no more able to find their way than they would be able to find their way through the African jungle, which is again, real interesting choice. Bringing us to chapter six, there's even more economics. I, summarizing it basically, debt is bad. It's bad for the economy. It's the foundation of capitalism, but that doesn't make it inefficient or on, or that doesn't make it efficient or sustainable. Uh, bringing us to chapter seven, even more talk about economics. Uh, he proposes a debtless economy. Doesn't really lay out how that would work exactly, but he does use a lot of words. Uh, his one brilliant idea here is to tax the rich, which, of course, was an idea that already existed at the time. Our guy managed to rediscover Keynesianism, even though uh, Keynes existed in 1936. He was he was alive. If you had thoughts on Keynesianism, you could just ask him. Uh, <laughs> um, but he he basically proposes like the idea of. of big bureaucracies to just uh, call in debts and that sort of thing. Um, but he does issue a threat, which was an interesting one. He says, quote, the discomfiture of the middle classes can turn into a Roman holiday at which the big bankers will be supplying and not enjoying the fun. So he's he's anti-working class. He, he despises working people. He, you know, he said that, you know, they should starve, that they, you know, for more in order to build up capitalism. Um, but he also hates the elites. He thinks the elites that we have now are just out of touch with reality and, and old fogies, uh, incapable of properly asserting hierarchy. And so Dennis uh, warns them that he and the other frustrated middle-tier elites are perfectly capable of over of threatening the elites and cracking down on working people at the same time, which is, of course, literally what fascism has always been. Uh, we've gone over the class background of every fascist thinker that we've covered on this podcast, and they tend to have a lot in common. Just go look at William Pierce, for example, a fucking intellectual, you know... I don't I, intellectual not in a bad way. He was a he was a PhD physicist, and we're pro science and pro knowledge and and so on on this podcast. But he was uh, he was a strike breaker. He tried to run over uh, picketing workers at Pitt, Pratt and Whitney while he was working there. He hated working people. He loved hierarchy. He loved elitism, and he he wanted to be in charge. William Pierce and Dennis was no different. Um, but uh, that brings us up to chapter nine now where Dennis moves on from the pseudo-economic bullshit of the past four or five chapters to speculations on what an American fascism would look like. 
uh, says Dennis, quote, The fascist scheme of things is an expression of human will, which creates its own truths and values from day to day to suit its changing purposes. Fascism is always fluid. It's always changing. It never has any firm principles. The important thing for fascists is to do shit, to be seen as doing shit, and to go just action for action's sake. Literally classic Mussolini rhetoric Dennis is giving here. Quote, says Dennis continues, quote, As a triumphant force, fascism is essentially an expression of the human will, reacting to the situations of life in the eternal struggle for existence. It may be said that the fascist plan is what the people want or what the leaders want. Uh, that last bit seems pretty imprecise. Is fascism popular or is it a scheme by the elites? It's both, apparently, according to Dennis. So that's interesting. Uh, but Dennis continues his defense of fascism, quote, too simple, but per fascism, of course, has always been anti-rational, uh, anti-intellectual and anti-logic and common sense and thinking shit through always has been, always will be. It's why you're not going to own them in the marketplace of ideas or whatever. Uh, he, and, and from this thought, Endless pages and pages and pages follow about planning the connection between means and ends uh, and, quote-unquote, European models that Americans could follow. But logic, remember, it's not important to fascism. So it's just words, pages and pages and pages of word salad from here on out. Uh, says Dennis, quote, The social plan expresses the will and purposes of the dominant classes. Some people, he says, know what they want and still want it, a fact which many liberals have difficulty in understanding. Um, but, of course, as we've already laid out, Dennis maintains that fascists reject any appeals to reason and poor things are accused of being anti-rational. Um, so they reject reason and they're, they're victimized and accused of being anti-rational. Oh no, the poor dears, whatever shall they do. Uh, move, bringing us up to chapter 10 now, Dennis says a very obvious thing that, quote, all government has to be a monopoly of force and that liberal American democracy is also coercive, wherein he cites the plight of black folks in America as an example, um, <laughs> which is, again, the, uh, true, correct, but is not something fascists typically point out or say. Uh, he says, quote, the force factors are instrumental in every social scheme. Social order and not individual or group self-expression must be the highest ultimate value of any social plan. He views liberty as a matter of what powerful elites permit and individual individuals to do or say and so on. Uh, the phrase social order does come up a lot in chapter 10. Says Dennis, quote, there is, no, there is no one in power with any significant degree of responsibility for the consequences of his economic or political acts. Irresponsibility in the use of power, political or economic, says Dennis, is due to, quote, liberal hostility to coordination of authority and a permanent governing class. Dennis discussed lobbyists, which was weird because he already was a lobbyist at the time that he was writing this book. Um, but that discussion of lobbyists and lobbying pretty much rounds up chapter 10, bringing us to chapter 11. Uh, fascist states aren't particularly special, says Dennis. They just act like more honest states. Uh, constitutionalism, he maintains, doesn't stop in a, a hypothetical 
American incursion and occupation of Nicaragua, and he states that liberalism's purpose is to maintain private property rights. Says Dennis, quote, the right of private property to be treated by the state with greater consideration than human life is the essence of liberalism. Uh, and he states that uh, liberalism is incompatible with strong nationalism and that the state protects rich people's wealth and power. By With a short summary of chapter 11, I have, sa- I have saved you from 10 pages of just word salad. So you're welcome. Bringing us to chapter 12. Uh, Might makes right, classic fascism 101. Uh, highway robbery is just taxation with less paperwork. Uh, that's it, bringing us to chapter 13 uh, with more brilliant insights like, quote, uh, a person can never function except as a person. And another brilliant insight here, quote, with changes in time and conditions, laws very soon need rewriting. Uh, which is, again, brilliant fucking take there. Uh, there's a phrase that comes up after this very often, and it's a very strange old-timey slain I, I gathered. Um, the phrase is, knocked into a, into a crooked hat, or a cocked hat. Knocked into a cocked hat, which means to be defeated, owned, shown to be false, as in an argument or debate. Uh, the champion of feudalism used to be a knight in arms, says Dennis. Champion of capitalism is a lawyer. Uh, he he uh, he he goes through an entire section of how decisions are contested in a fascist state and the rights of citizens under fascism, which is fucking laughable. That's not how fascism actually has ever worked, and we know that now. And people knew that in 1938. People were fleeing Italy. People were forming resistance cells. People were doing undiscussable things to fascists. It was known how fascism actually fucking worked. And you had to be a naive sack of shit or a complete hack and a fraud to maintain that citizens under fascism had rights. Fuck you. Um, Says Dennis here, quote, In the regulation of of private conduct, a fascist government will facilitate appeal, re-examination, and discussion of government measures and policies. Conceivably, of course, says Dennis, a state might fall into the hands of a few individuals whose every act would be an abuse, but such an eventuality seems improbable in any modern state, least of all in the United States. Really? Really? Are you sure? (laughs) That couldn't happen. You know, no one could rise to the top of the state and use the state as their personal piggy bank and, and, you know, facilitate rampant sexual abuse and economic domination and start wars with all their neighbors and shit. That would never happen in fascist Italy or Nazi Germany and certainly not in the United States, the land of the free and the home of the fucking brave. Jesus fucking Christ, guy. Anyway, we're up to chapter 14 now. Uh, and Dennis finally remembers that he's trying to write a book that's useful and has an actual purpose, where he says, quote, It is mainly in the discussion of fascist philosophy that this book can be useful. Uh, and what exactly would an American fascism have as its goals? Um, maximum production, rising living standards, all the good shit, none of the bad shit, basically. Um Communism would liquidate the technicians and the professionals, says Dennis. Therefore, America should choose fascism. Because obviously, if you went to the Soviet Union in the 30s, there weren't any, like, scientists or... 
there was a purge of the generals and shit going on. But that was more of a Stalin being paranoid type thing than it was a, a stated party goal. Because at this point, the party had fully fallen into a bureaucracy that it was always going to. And people had warned our Marxist friends of long before the Soviet Union even existed. Um, but at, at this point, uh, there weren't there wasn't much of an anarchist above ground movement in the Soviet Union that was able to critique the system without getting shot in a, you know, in a basement somewhere. Uh, there's lots of talk in chapter 14 about spirit this and spirit that. Spirit, nature, natural, organic, race. Race is left out of this book, of course, for reasons that would be fairly obvious. Um, but, uh, yeah, lots of talk of organic and nature and spirit and so on. Famous fascist buzzwords. We've covered them over and over again. Uh, says Dennis in a really scorching hot take. Obviously, he says, obviously, quote, a governmental bureaucracy is preferable to a corporate bureaucracy. Um, this brings us to chapters 15 through 20, where he states that the individual cannot make money. They can only obtain it from those who have it. So wealth is, is first created and then just moved around. Uh, and But he maintains that only commodity money, like gold and shit like that, is not fiat money. And that enlargement of the market economic control are key problems for an American form of fascism. Uh, says Dennis, had America chosen not to act as a nation, we should have received the same treatment China and Ethiopia are receiving today. Uh, which is interesting. Uh, he compares the executives of the of the class collaborating unions to CEOs, which is a point I've made, but it's weird to hear that from a fascist. He uses the phrase national discipline a lot for this last chunk of the book. Um, he wants more state control of education, and, and he maintains that mass mobilization of propaganda is needed. Uh, he says, quote, the first purpose of any social scheme is to work. Again, fucking brilliant hot take there. Uh, pages and pages of propaganda is good when fascists do it. Uh, and then the really honest line here, quote, whatever the elite impose on the people, they should use good educational technique to make the people like it. Uh, which, yeah, that makes sense. A society is viewed by Dennis as always having elites. Elites are culture generators. They, they make culture, and culture is whatever a ruling elite says it is. Uh, and he, he basically ends the book by stating that uh, <laughs> he, he, he wants to be a middle elite. Please give him a chance. Please let him have power and money and wealth and all these things. And of course, much like Ben Carson or uh, – I already said her name. What the fuck is her name? Uh, Candace Owens, like, like those people – He's never respected by the the white capitalist state power structures that he wants to suck up to. He's never respected by them. They don't like him. They don't want him. They use him and they cast him aside. And that's the fate of really all bootlickers and all 
you know, wannabe demagogues in the fascist tradition. It's just especially tragic to see a, you know, a, a black man from a, you know, an interesting childhood with all the intellectual gifts in the world and all the right connections and shit. And he just hated himself so much that he, he turned on his own community in order to suck up to power elites who cast him aside the minute he was inconvenient. By the days of like Joseph McCarthy, he was pretty much just a bitter crank. Um, it's just, uh, it was a, sh it's a shame to see a man do that to himself. Um, but anyway, this has been the Black and Red Book Review Podcast. I've been your host, Doc. Don't be Lawrence Dennis. Don't be a fascist. Um, they, you know, you're, if you're a fascist or a white nationalist and you're listening to this, your people, your friends, your, your, your scene, uh, everyone wants to be the Fuhrer. Everyone wants to be on in charge and have their boot on someone's neck. And uh, your friends will snitch on you. They'll fuck you over. They'll, they'll, you know, cheat and steal and fuck you over the minute they get the chance. So don't be like that. Uh, this has been Doc, the host of the Black and Red Book Review podcast, and I will see you in the streets.